Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, I want to tell you ahead of time that this episode uh, featuring Rio Ewer's return to uh, to Postcards from a Dying World is being recorded in December. You're not going to hear it till February around the time that this book comes out. So uh, there's a little time travel involved with this story. So if any major world events that relate to No Second Chances happen like a big uh, um, celebrity crisis or something, we, we won't be commenting on it. But uh, um, Rio, welcome back to Postcards from a Dying World. Thanks, David. Uh, great to be here. Great to be talking to you again. And, you know, we appreciate the support as ever. Yeah, I, I, I really love this book. Um, I was really uh, excited to get an arc uh, and be able to read it early. It's really fun. But before we get to No Second Chances, and we are going to talk about it, I do want to talk about the comic book work that you're doing. Um, as I was able to read your uh, the, the first volume of the collected uh, Sleeping Beauties, which you got right. to um, adapt a pretty big name here, and or two names in the, the um, novel Sleeping Beauties by Stephen and Owen King. Um, how did this project come together? Well, um, I've known Chris Ryle, who, uh, San Diego guy, great, great guy. I've known him for, oh man, I want to say 10 years, probably. I met him at a, a convention down in Austin and we hit it off. And, you know, it was always obvious that we were going to put our heads together and, and work together on something. It just had to be the right project. And I did a one shot, like Zombies versus Robots thing with him which was great because it got me to sort of you know uh it sort of introduced me to writing comic scripts and there wasn't a great deal of pressure on me because I knew I had Chris in my corner who would certainly you know help me along if I was going astray um but uh so that was a nice little intro into comics and yeah it was clear we were going to do something together we and we banded around a few ideas over the years and we came close on a few things i was actually he approached me to do an x-files comic um when idw were doing that i was on the the, the short list um it was me and two other writers we you know we pitched our ideas and um and it you know like i said i it was me two other guys and they chose one of the other guys which at the time i was like oh man i would love to have written the x-files that, comic. Would, that would have been awesome and I had this really great idea as well for this, this comic book series. And I was, you know, I was, it stung a little not getting that gig, but it was the best thing really, because um, that was a long series that, that, that ended up at IDW and that would have tied me up for a long time. And the really good thing was that one of the ideas I had for the X-Files comic was about this young girl who had the ability to steal memories from someone's mind. And, and I always thought that was too, too good an idea to let slip. And I actually developed that idea and it became the novel, The Forgotten Girl, which, um, which is- I'm a huge fan of. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, and that's and uh, as as am I. It's actually one of my my favorite of, of my novels, and and that was the book that kind of led me on this. You know, I I would say you know being that was the book that was bought the first book I sold out outside of the small presses. So the first book that sold to a to a major New York publisher. So you know, yeah, every cloud has a silver lining, right? Um, right. And then we right. were going to do something. Then Chris and I were going to do this. Is a quite a long answer, so. You know, hold. No, no, take your time. (laughs) Chris and I were going to do a uh, a comic book together called Derry. I think it was called Derry or something like that. Um, But it was set in Derry, Maine, Stephen King's Derry, Maine. And we were going to use multiple Stephen King characters. And it was all going through all of the, you know, King's legal department and and his lawyers and so on. So it looked for a long time like it was going to happen. and I was obviously stoked to do that. And then it just kind of fell through. And that happens from time to time. Projects look like they've got legs and then the legs just collapse out from under them. And it wasn't, it wasn't too long after that, that, that uh, TV show, I think it was called um, the Castle Rock TV show that JJ, yeah, that came out. And it was a very similar idea. And I wonder, I always wondered if our idea was kind of, you know, More just pushed the because yeah. it was a bit close to the other one, the, the Castle Rock TV show. Um, I, you know, we'll never know that. But uh, yeah, and then, yeah, so we, were, we stayed in touch. We had all these ideas. And then and then he emailed me out of the blue one day and said, hey, I've been talking to Owen, who I also know. Owen's a big fan, and he, he he's a big fan of my, my novel, Westlake Soul. And, you know, we'd always talked about working together, Owen and I. And he said, you know, I was talking to Owen, and... Um, we really want to do a Sleeping Beauties comic. Is that something you might be interested in? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's do it. He said, I've, you know, I've mentioned your name to Owen and he's, you know, you guys are friends. So it was something that, that we can definitely uh, put together. We obviously got to go through all of the, you know, the legal stuff with, you know, the, the King property and, and his lawyers. And, but it looks like this one's going to happen. And even then, there was a part of me thinking it ain't gonna happen. Like you know, right, right. Yeah, you know, what are the chances of this thing finally sort of taking off? And it took a while. Like it probably was eighteen months from that initial email, but from Chris Ryle to um, getting the green light and everything being squared away with the lawyers. And, and yeah, was the novel out? And had you read it yet? Or because I know sometimes these things happen. Yeah, no, it was out. It had just, I, you know, I. I just finished reading it actually when, you know, maybe like three weeks before or whatever it was when, when Chris emailed me. So it was very fresh in my head. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I waited until I got the green light before I sat down to read it again. Mm -hmm. I was initially told that it was going to be 18 issues and I thought there were 22 page issues and I thought, okay, this is great because I've got, 18 times 22 pages here to to tell this story because it's a 700 page novel it's a huge book yeah um, and I knew I'd have to make some cuts quite a few cuts and then um, once the contract was signed and, and everything had been squared away I found out that it was actually 10 issues and that they would be 20 pages each issue <laughs> so you know my it was virtually halved how much room I had to, to work in and um, that frightened me a little bit because I didn't want to lose too much of the story. Mm. You know, the whole point of adapting something is that you tell the story that, that was originally told. Um, but, you know, 
I thought, what the hell, man, I'm going to give this a go. So, yeah, we, we did it. We put it together. and It was a great experience. Now, um, Owen has let slip um, in, in the media that they wrote it as a teleplay first, that they yeah. originally did that. Did you get access to that at all to help with the process or was that or did you go strictly from, from did you adapt strictly from the novel? Yeah, from the novel, I didn't get access to any of the, the early uh, teleplay stuff. Um, no, it was, you know, no, I didn't get any special favors. It was just go read the book and then do right. your best. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> I did, yeah. I, you know. And I, that's I, and drilling down 700 pages to, to, to this is, is no small feat. So, like, well, yeah, I had to take I think it would be it would be a challenge for, for anybody if, if they're, you know, even if skilled and uh you know experienced adapting anything you know this was really you know i did that like i said that zombies versus uh robots 12 pager for chris royal back in the day but this was really my first comic and you know to for it to be my first comic is, is still an undertaking but for it to be an adaptation on top and then for me to have to really streamline the book and uh and turn it into something you know, worthy of the king name, uh, that was, there was a lot of pressure, you know, so um, I made sure that I ran everything by uh, the kings and I, and Chris obviously having him in my corner at the time, just to make sure that it was, uh, I wasn't going to upset anybody and, and that they were on board. So yeah, yeah. It, you know, I had this whole breakdown. I went through the book, I wrote down what happened in every chapter and then I broke it, you know, broke it down like, okay, what do I need? What do I need to tell this story? What can go? And I had to make some pretty tough cuts. There's some fantastic scenes in the book that I really wanted to include, but I just didn't have the room, you know. So mm -hmm. I had to I had to cut them out. And uh that was tough. But you know, on the whole, we've got we've got the story and we've got the characters and we got lots of action and and the artwork by Allison and Triona or Trina is second to none and it's, it's a project i'm very proud of yeah the artwork is incredible we'll get back to that but i i, I want to yeah. talk about adapting a little bit more because we like to nerd out on writing on this podcast yeah good so, so uh, one of the things that I, I i'm curious about is you read this book already you already had an yeah. experience just reading it and just reading it's a totally different experience from going back and taking notes and doing all that um how different did you did you view the story um after like living living in it not having written it yet but just reading it as uh i gotta think about this more deeply because i'm sure it kind of changed right in your head a little bit yeah you start looking for i mean fundamentally i was looking for things that i didn't really need or that I could do, I, you know, I kind of read it more with an, like an editor's eye, I suppose, even though I'm not an editor and I have no skill as an editor and like my own stuff. And that doesn't really count. Right. Um, so it was, it was a different, yeah, it was definitely a different experience, but you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff in this book that, that doesn't necessarily pertain to story, but that does pertain to character and character drive story. So even things that were not, you could think, yeah, I can, I can probably do away with that. You still felt that you were losing something vital to what made Sleeping Beauties the novel that you know, makes it the novel that it is. 
Um, and it was, yeah, it was very, you know, it was a very careful process, a very considered and respectful process. And reading it, you know, I was looking for stuff that I could that I could cut. And I and obviously I was finding stuff, but not without cost. Um, I enjoyed it as much second time through because I was I really developed a kinship with characters that I knew myself I would be spending a lot of time with. Mm. And that happened, you know, during the writing of the script, Clint and Lila and, uh, you know, Terry and all of these great characters from the book, they became my characters. And, you know, I was giving them new lines of dialogue, directing them in a, in a slightly different way. But, um, yeah, they, I'd sort of become um, adopted parent at this point from, from, the, from the two kings. And, uh, and I treated them as I would treat any of my own characters, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and Sleeping Beauties was interesting because when I read it, there were some really great setups and payoffs in it. To, to the degree that I remember, I have a very distinct memory of reading one of those setup and payoffs while I was on a commute to work, having the thought, there's no way this wasn't outlined. There's no way this wasn't planned. This is not a seat of the pants thing. And so I felt very vindicated when I read that Owen said they had written it as a script before. So, yeah. so I don't think this was quite as seat of the, seat of the pants as the Kings tend to write. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those setups and, and payoffs in the story of Sleeping Beauties just play so well with the um, the concept of the particular pandemic that, it, that it's writing about. Yeah. And yeah, it makes for interesting stuff. So um, but I guess living I, I don't know, I'm babbling here, but I, I'm just saying that I, I really appreciated. I, I think it's one of the better collaborations that that uh, um, Steve has had with his with his sons and he's done a, a couple now and yep. and and i was uh, really glad to see you translate it and one of the things that i was really glad to see too a little bit is it gave you a chance to you could shorthand a lot of the story by being able to use visuals and that comes down to the art so it must have been a great feeling to see how power powerful the art turned out because it looks great so absolutely yeah allison's fantastic she she um you know all of her um characters are um they're, they're modeled on real people and she photographs her friends um um interestingly one of the characters in in the second issue is um chris hemsworth's stunt double um yeah yeah his name's uh, bobby dazzler and uh, he's uh he's just just that's a great name <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's his real name, but it's his stage name. He's one of Chris Hemsworth's big buddies, and, and I guess he knows Allison as well. And and uh, yeah, yeah, that's 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 my six degrees from Kevin Bacon story to you know that links me to Chris Hemsworth. Um, but yeah, so she uses real people, and then that gives obviously gives them a real look. You know, they, they, it, it is a comic book, but they these they look like real people living real lives, and and everything is modeled on on realism and uh and i love that i love that but there's a surrealism to it as well mm -hmm. that you know the juxtaposition juxtaposition between these two elements makes for a truly magical art style and when you add 
Trina Farrell's colors, which are, you know, again, surreal and, and beautiful, gorgeous, um, very appealing. You know, you can flip through the book and you know these colors just bounce off the page. You know, the whole thing, the, the aesthetic of the whole thing is, is incredibly pleasing. The only thing I'm not a big fan of is, is the black speech balloons. Um, but that was a decision that was made way up the IDW ladder that I didn't get to be a part of. Um, um, but other than that, you know, visually, this is, I think, one of the most visually pleasing comic books I've ever, I've ever seen. The, the artwork's phenomenal. Watching it come in as well was such a delight. That's actually my favorite part of the, of the whole comic writing process. It's, uh -huh. it's, it's seeing the artwork and I'm experiencing that now with Refrigerator Full of Heads um the great tom fowler doing the artwork for that and just seeing it come in is is just a real treat you know it's great yeah we'll talk about that one in a minute now yeah. now here's the the thing like we all know a lot of our favorite like being in this community we know a lot of our favorite authors personally and we're good friends with them and so some of that stuff kind of wears off but stephen king is a whole different thing <laughs> foundational level that he kind of plays in all of our lives who read this genre and how much we've read him and how important he is to the community and the saturation into pop culture that he's had um yeah. it makes it a totally different thing so i'm sure it had to be totally nerve-wracking did you send a script to him before before or did you just get feedback when it was done or um i sent to steve i sent um basically my my outline for all 10 issues mm -hmm. so i knew before i even sat down to write issue one exactly what was going to happen scene by scene in every comic book through all 10 and uh yeah it was you know i just broke it all down and and i put it on however many pages of, of uh you know and, and send it off to owen chris ryle to steve king and i said this is my this is what i propose i think we tell the story well we'll get a great sense of character and you know, give me feedback here. Because again, you know, new to comics, not really knowing right. what the hell I was doing. Very nervous, didn't want to upset anybody. And I expected pages and pages of notes. And what I got back from Chris Royal was this is excellent, just proceed. So um, yeah, the Kings gave it the go-ahead. As for the actual script by script feedback, um, Steve took a back seat on that and Owen jumped up in into the into the passenger seat and he was he read everything he read all of the scripts steve trusted him to uh to make the right calls and and he did and uh yeah we you know got feedback from owen and yeah so steve wasn't he wasn't involved a great deal once we started rolling but he's a busy um, guy <laughs> yeah you know he's got a lot going on and i wasn't expecting him to be um, but certainly the, those beginning stages, we, we, we'd exchanged a few emails and, and there were, there were a few things as well with, um, trans, transgenderism that we definitely were keen to include in the book, in the, in the comic book. Um, and, you know, we wanted to make sure that, 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 that we did it right and that we, we did it, um, in a way that was, uh, representative and, um, again, you know, uh, having Allison and, and Trina on board, you know, I, I, I did my part in, in the writing, just what Allison did with the artwork and Trina did with the colors really, really added so much flavor to the story we were trying to tell. 
and you know tonally thematically it's just beautiful it's a beautiful book yeah and, and if i'm being honest like the one problem that i kind of had with sleeping beauties was there's like there's one scene where where it felt a little outdated when when some of the characters were like well who's gonna do the dishes you know now and and, and all that stuff and i thought that just personally i thought you you handled that so much better in the in the <laughs> in the graphic novel um because uh i i that was something that i was very thankful for because that was the one kind of problem i had with sleeping beauties is that you kind of you know no no offense to 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 half of this writing team but you could kind of tell the generational difference in, in some of that writing right right and, and, but and thanks a lot yeah 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 and so that was kind of important and um but but here's so but you've continued to work with the family now with with um, a refrigerator full of heads which you know so how did that happen like how did that come about because Joe launched his own line of of comics or a label of DC right is that yeah the... Hill House Hill House Comics so he's got his own imprint at the um, you know under the black label banner at DC um, and. Yeah, there were, uh, I think, five comics in that original line. Joe did two. He did Basketball of Heads and Plunge. It was the Dollhouse family. Um, yeah, so there were a few very successful um, comics. And, uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, I've known Joe for years as well. He's, he's been a big champion of my work. Um, great guy. Such a great guy. And, uh, you know, we're fans of each other's work, obviously. And then he just emailed me out of the blue and said, we're, we're putting Hill House back together and we'd love you to, to write a, a script if you're interested. I got it. He says, I got an idea and, um, and let's get together on the phone and talk about it. So, so we did. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, yeah. And, and then it became very collaborative in terms of Joe fielding ideas, me fielding ideas, Joe taking that, running with it adding to it me taking what joe added to, and, and just back and forth back and forth mm. and then you know the i remember our first telephone conversation and it, you know the creative energy on that call was i'd never experienced anything like it it was it was amazing it was just great and um, clearly we were, we were both on the same page as to, to what we wanted um i hadn't read basketball of heads but i I'd, I'd heard about it and um, when Joe said, oh, you know, I, I would be great if maybe we could do the sequel to that, I was, I was so excited because I loved the concept, the basketball of heads, this, this cursed Viking axe. Mm. But when you remove someone's head, the body dies, but the head stays alive. And I thought, Jesus, man, what a cool idea. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> you know, and then it turns out I'm writing the sequel to it. Uh, yeah, it's just so much creative energy, and and then Joe was was said, well, let's let's put a pitch together, and um, and I wrote a pitch, and <clears throat> and then Joe added some things, and then you know, and we sent it in, and then the editor at the time um, <clears throat> added some things. It looked like it was all going to go ahead, and then they had a big shuffle, a reshuffle at DC, and some people were uh, laid off, and other people moved on, and um, the project died for about six months it looked like it wasn't going to happen again you know this happens a lot in film and, and tv and comics and everything where it looks like something's just about to get the green light and then suddenly whoosh, hit the brakes 
and yeah, I kind of, I kind of forgot about it. It went off the radar, and um, and again, Joe emailed me. He said, you know, they've got a new editor at DC, and we're going to get this thing going again. Are you still interested? And I said, yeah, you know what, I am interested, and I've been thinking about that initial pitch, and I'd like to have another run at it because in those six months, I'd been thinking and thinking, and I threw this wild pitch at Joe, and he loved it, and and. Then again, you know, Joe added added a few things in, and and we 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 add the pitch I delivered to DC. I was I knew as soon as I sent it in, there's no way this is getting turned down. This is too good. <laughs> this is too too much fun. And and sure enough, it was it was greenlit almost right away. But that that process with Joe, like that creative going back and forth with ideas and each feeding off the other, was was pretty special. Yeah, I'd never experienced anything like that. And, you know. I got lots of writer friends and we talk ideas and stuff and all, all the time and it's great and it's fun, but there was something pretty electric in, in those conversations I had with Joe. It was a special time. Yeah. I actually, I'm a, a huge fan of collaborating. Um, if you can find the right project and the right thing to do, because I, um, I, I love that process of sharing ideas and not feeling alone on things. And there's a certain joy to, to writing by yourself two <laughs> and being totally in charge of something but if you can find the right people to work with it can be really great uh, but speaking of project that's all your own um and let, let, let's stay with the king family for just a little bit more because um i didn't know this book was on the way i don't well no yeah i think i might have already i think I'm, i think you'd already talked about it uh but it was a big deal when when King blurbed it. Like, so I, he has blurbed your work before, or talked about your work before, I believe. But, but still, like getting that kind of validation for for this book right out of the gate, it's got to be a great feeling for. Yeah, no second actually, chances, which is the book we're talking about. And I didn't mention right. it. Right. Yeah, yeah. No second chances. Yeah. Um, new book. It's out February from William Morrow. No, this was the first time. Um, that King, had, had, I think maybe the first time he'd actually read one of my novels, certainly the first time he publicly endorsed anything of mine. Um, and yeah, it was, it was good. It was nice. It was a really good blurb and very grateful. Yeah. And uh, I hope it helps, it helps the book get noticed. Oh, I'm sure it will. There's a lot of us. I mean, like if King talks about a book, I'm going to pay attention. Like a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, for me, like one of the ones that I can remember, like End of the World Running Club, like was just a book that was just absolutely not on my radar. And like the minute he's, you know, talked about it, I, I, I put it on hold at the library, read it, loved it. And so like, I do think that that cosine is, it's, it's still very, very, very important. And um, so anyway, so no second chances, like you're coming off Lola on fire. And if people aren't from, familiar with a little on fire we we talked about it on this podcast so yeah. i recommend that they go back and listen to that conversation too because i've got more into your origin story in that one but little on fire um one, one of the cool things that happened re recently is that there's a film critic i really respect jacob hall who writes for uh slash film and he um discovered Lola on fire recently um he did a reading vacation and on, on their podcast he 
he talked on and on and on about how great Lola and Fire was, how, you know, one day we'll see a movie of it and you'll remember I told you to read this book. And right. it was really, yeah, it was really cool to hear him talk about Lola and Fire in that way. But I had no idea about that. So thanks. Thanks for telling me. That's great. It's good. Yeah. To know. yeah. Um, and Jacob's one of the film critics that I really, really respect. I've, I've had I've been on his podcast and he's been on mine. And so and I really respect his, he has, he's really, um, he was on a Nick Cutter kick and read Lola and Fire right after uh, reading like three Nick Cutter books in a row. And it right. was really cool to hear because <clears throat> for me, like Lola and Fire was, was, it was just cool to hear somebody else get it the way that I, somebody outside of our literary community and, 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 you know, and just say like, and was saying like a lot of the right things about what Lola on fire was and what was cool about Lola on fire is that it really felt like, and I know you wanted this is it felt like an action movie in book form. Right. And yeah. where do you go from there? What do you do from there? Like, you know, what was your process of thinking like, what's the next book and how did no second chances come out of, you know, moving on from Lola on fire as your project? I, I wanted to write another, you know, action movie in book form. That was, that was, that was a hundred percent the motive for that. Um, I, I, I always thought that the second book would be another Lola book. That was what I thought I was going to write when it came to sort of, you know, putting ideas together. I didn't really have anything that would, that would do the character that would give her the platform that I felt Lola needed. The thing with Lola on fire is uh, it's really not a, about Lola there, really. It's about Brody and Molly. Um, it's their story. And Lola is, is actually a secondary character. And she comes in, she's right, she's there right at the beginning. And then she comes in about halfway through. But it was never intended to be Lola's story as such. And I always wanted to write a book where it was Lola's story and and um, whether that was going to be a kind of prequel book or whether it was going to be, you know, after the events of Lola on Fire, I wasn't sure. But that was kind of the intention. But, you know, like I said, there was no, I didn't really have anything that I felt would do her justice and, and, and please the readers and the fans of the first book. Um, what I did have in my head were, were, were these two characters that, I, that had sort of been living in my skull for probably the best part of two or three years. Um, Luke Kingsley, who's a washed up, has been actor, fallen on hard times after everybody believes, you know, he, he killed his wife. And Kitty Ray, who's this wannabe um, starlet, who's moved from the East Coast, or Kentucky, as it turns out, into uh, to LA to chase her dreams and, and bring in these two characters together both from very different walks of life and um and making some kind of magic happen between them i didn't really have anything in in, in the way of an idea or some, some sort of plot driven story for these guys but it was uh it was, i just knew that i had to do something i also every book i've written pretty much i think has been set in the northeast or certainly along the east coast um of the united states or here in canada you know the forgotten forgotten girl was Jersey, although Harvey does take off and does travel across the country. Um, Halcyon was Lake Ontario. And yeah, I just wanted to write a book and set it in California. You know, I wanted palm trees and sunshine. Wanted I, just to 
because when I when I write a book, I live in the book, right? I just I, and I kind of just felt like living in California for a year, <laughs> even if it was only in my own, my own head. And I really wanted to spend time with these characters. And it was really only when I didn't know how the, how they would work together, but it was it was when I got the idea for Johan, this uh, YouTube uh, sensation wannabe Viking and the drug dealer to the stars. When he entered the equation, then I saw how the pieces would go together. I saw one guy who was perhaps, you know, wrongly vilified. And I saw this other guy who was perhaps wrongly celebrated. And, and for this new, you know, for a kitty new to the city looking for looking for some kind of influence, looking for a friend, for a shoulder, um, you know, which, which route would she end up taking, you know? And, um, and, and just as, as soon as that happened, everything else seemed to fall into place and, um, and no second chances came into to be in. And it was, yeah, and I, I, I knew also that I had to have those action movie elements and, and I love doing that stuff, the car chases and, you know, is it, yeah, I remember somewhere I read somewhere it was like one of these writers group tips or or like uh, you know whatever they call them like just uh, advice and they said never write a car chase into your into your action sequences and my my reaction to that was well you know fuck you buddy and I put two in the <laughs> forgotten girl I, I I'm putting I love writing anything action I'll do it and you can write car chases. Why can't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I put two in the Forgotten Girl, and there's there's a there's a big car chase in in uh, um, there's a car chase in Love on Fire. There's a you know I wanted to go all out Hollywood on this. There's a big car chase in in No Second Chances, and it's just so much fun. I have fun when I write, so I'll do what I want. Thank you. Well, you know what's really interesting though is that uh, you do great action scenes, and they are fun parts of it, but. Even with, whether it's Lola on Fire or No Second Chances, a lot of times, like the thing that sticks with you after you after you close the book and you're thinking about the book later are the characters. And I think that that's your secret weapon is that the characters are so rich in here. And specifically, Luke and Johan are like a, a great reversal of each other in right. so many ways. And that's one of the things that, that, that makes it strong. And I know king and his blurb really like pointed to johan as, as a, a strong villain and i want to drill down on that when we get into spoilers but i but i think it, i think that's for spoilers i think it's important to tell people that's one of the things that makes this book what it is to me it's the rich characters when you see something that says la noir and it's funny because i know in my review uh, well, King said in his blurb that it was like a Hollywood noir, and I, I know I kind of nitpicked that a little bit because I feel like it's a Southern California noir because so much of this book has the, des the desert as a character in this mm -hmm. book as well. I don't know. It's just uh, the use of the word Hollywood, uh, it um, kind of rings. That works better for people that don't live in California or right, yeah. experienced L.A. because Hollywood just. It, to us, it's just a tiny neighborhood in the city. And for example, your characters live in John Skip's old hood in uh, Silver Lake, right. which is a very different part of town, right? Yeah. Uh, from Hollywood. And the fact that they're in Silver Lake is important to the story. 
Right. For, for that reason. But the City of Broken Dreams aspect of it is important to Luke. It's important to Kitty in the story. And the fact that there are no broken dreams for their villain is one of the really smart narrative choices that's going on here. And thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so um, before we, we really get into, into the plot, into, into the spoilers, what I would tell people is the vibe, um, like a lot of times, like it was funny because with Lola on Fire, I kept saying the vibe kind of reminded me of the best Luke Basson action movies, you know? Um, and here I got a real Tony Scott um, true romance vibe in a, in, right. in a way. Not Quentin Tarantino, True Romance, but Tony Scott, right? In specific, is it kind of felt like like a lost Tony Scott movie to me? Um, oh, cool! That's great. Yeah, and and that's like a huge part of the vibe that I got. It's a crime story. It's a thriller. It's it's an action story, but it's character based. So I don't know how you feel about that comparison. I don't. But know. that's my jam. That's what I. That's what I do. That's what I want to kind of be. If, if I'm remembered for anything, it would be, you know, someone who writes great, you know, store, plot driven stories, but actually have some substance and some character. I tried to do that in Lola on Fire. I've tried to do that with every book. I've written so many thrillers or sort of paint by numbers, you know, and yeah. there's not really a lot of, you know, it's all, you know, hard boiled, you know, heroes. And, you know, I, I think I want to just be able to do better than that as a novelist. Um, and yeah, you know, the Hollywood thing, I mean, it's, it is, you're right. It's definitely, um, it's, the whole of Los Angeles feels like the character in this book, not just the, the Hollywood. It does have that backdrop of the movie industry, you know, with Luke being this, this actor whose career was certainly on the rise when everything went south for him. And, you know, his, you know, his want to be exonerated but also his his desire to get back into into movies kitty as well you know that's why she's there she wants to you know get a big break um johan like i said he's this drug dealer to the to the stars so although you know it's a very small portion of the book actually takes place in the neighborhood of hollywood you know that hollywood sign kind of looms in the background of, of many of the scenes um and uh, and then eventually we we sort of veer off into the into the desert and we actually cross the state line into Nevada at a well, later well, point in the book. We'll get to I that. Should, I should be clear that ninety eight percent of the world is not going to have a problem with calling it Hollywood noir, and they're no, going to no, feel that no. way. That that's I would, just I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if Stephen King says it, I'm, I'm very cool with it. It's just. Um, I, I just think the Southern Californian in me, like, I, I kind of, I just, I think so much of the rest of LA is an important part of the story. And that's, it's, yeah, I, I agree. And that was always the me thing. It's, don't worry about that. No, no, that was always the intention. And, and it's, it's good to hear that. Um, you know, I'm not a California native. Um, and while I did visit Los Angeles and while I did, you know, you know, research and, and uh, try to, to develop as much of a taste and as much of a feel for the lifestyle as I could in, in the short time I was there, I knew I wasn't going to really be able to hit, hit it on the head. And that anybody who lives in California would probably, um, you know, find some, uh, 
something that, that I did wrong or some place where I kind of went wrong. But uh, again, you know, I go back to my good buddy, Chris Royal, who is a California native, yeah. who knows Los Angeles. seems everybody from San Diego knows Los Angeles really well. Um, <laughs> we have to go up there a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so Chris, uh, Chris really knows Los Angeles. He knows the whole neighborhood. And he was my first reader. And I said, dude, listen, I, you know, I, this, I want this to sound authentic. I want this to sound like it was written by a Californian. So anyway, yeah. you can, you can help me out. He was great. You know? No, no. And, and, and really like there, there, there's nothing I'm calling bullshit on for, I, cool. that, that was a little nitpick on, on, on the blurb, not the book. I get but, it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it did feel like, and, and, and just like picking really like, for example, Silver Lake as a neighborhood, uh, the has-been actor and the wannabe actor are, are more likely to be in than, than than some other neighborhoods, you know, like setting it in Santa Monica or something, you know, like those right. are, yeah. those are clear and smart choices. And so, so um, that, that, that's good. And, and before we get into spoilers and the last like pitch that, that we would make to people who have not gotten the book yet or are on the fence about, um uh reading it um i really do think that that kind of true romance vibe is is a lot of how i kind of sell it to people and it's this guy kind yeah. of the weird crime thing but i think um the rich characters is 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 what i what i think is the um to me it, it's it's a character driven noir and that's how i sell it so and that's that's fantastic thanks and i like the true true romance uh, vibe as well you know um that's a great movie. I think that's a, I think that's a character-driven sort of crime thriller as well. You know. Um, oh, absolutely. Forget that's, the name yeah. of the characters, but you've got Christine Slater's character who kind of sees Elvis at every turn, and you know, it's it's uh, um, Gary Oldman's character, the the drug dealer with the dreadlocks. I love all that, you know. And I thought it was, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's that's think, that's kind of the 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 characters and the way that the characters kind of push through is why it's. It, it, the why I thought of true romance anyways. So that's great. That's a good comparison. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for you for uh, cooling that out. It's great. All right. So let's get into spoilers. So everyone's warned that, that we're going to talk details um, here. Yeah. So much of the story is set up like now at this point, we're assuming everyone's read it. So if, if you've listened this far, you're doing yourself a disabler, just, uh, a disservice <laughs> if you have not read it. So last warning, because we're, we're going to talk about the characters in the whole. So let's start with Kitty. Oh, no, no, no. Let's start with Luke, because Luke, Luke's the one that's got more of a spoil, spoilery story. Kitty's yeah. out there trying to do the Hollywood dream, that kind of thing, and lives across the street from Luke, who's this failed actor. And so much of, and the reason why is because he was basically canceled because uh, woke up with uh, blood all over him and his famous wife who's a singer uh, disappeared and he knows that he didn't kill her but the reader and the world uh, really doesn't in the beginning how much was it important to kind of add some ambiguity to, to Luke in, in, in the beginning because I wasn't sure if he had done it or not in the early pages and yeah. one of the most you know, important scenes is when he like really after you know well then you know when he tries to commit suicide that makes you think oh well he must feel guilty or it's because his life is lost like 
tell me about developing Luke and that ambiguity. Yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the words you used there was failed, failed actor. And I guess, I guess he is, I guess that is actor. But like, I'd always thought of him as a successful actor who, you know, so many people want to be, you know, stars move to Hollywood and they, you know, they don't get anything, you know, they don't get it. They don't even get an audition. Um, That's true. That's and true. Luke, Luke had gone, he was making movies, you know, he was making movies with Travolta and, um, he was he was in a good place, uh, and uh, you know he had the house up in Sherman Oaks. Life was good. He was married to Lisa Hayes, Grammy winning soul singer. So he he had success, but then it all came crashing down um, after his wife went missing, and he was you know he woke up with blood all over his shirt, her blood as it turns out, and um, the ambiguity was important because. In regard to Kitty, we want to be as as the reader. I think I wanted the reader to be nervous, very wary, very yeah. 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 Just make sure you make the right decision here. So you know, like I said, you know, you've got these two characters. You've got Johan who shines and everything he touches turns to gold, and you've got um, you know Luke whose, whose world has turned to shit. And um, and and Johan yeah, so, getting all this for doing nothing for just basically accomplishing nothing and luke was a hard-working actor and and it all yeah. fell apart so there that great reversal on each other flip side um for each other and it's one of the things that makes him like a, a, a really great and i said this to my coworker who's reading the book uh, who i passed on to as i said the thing with johan that makes him such a great villain is that in a story about the city of broken dreams he's living the the dreams for doing nothing like he's just basically handed it to him and so one of the important things for him as a villain is all the times that he says my dad's lawyers are going to have a heyday with this it's 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 the thing that makes him such a such a perfect prick for uh for hollywood noir yeah yeah he feels he's untouchable and he probably is you know he's just a son of a billionaire you know, all of this success has come out of the fact that he's never had to want for anything. You know, he's always had money. He's always been able to do whatever he's wanted. It's got him into big places. And yeah, you know, he's he's a YouTuber, but he doesn't really work-wise do too much more than that. Everything's been handed to him. Whereas Luke, you know, he moved from um, Wisconsin to, uh, to Hollywood and he's up to scratch and claw for everything. And, you know, as we're into spoilers, you know, his world comes crashing down for no reason whatsoever. You know, it turns out that he, he didn't kill his wife and he's, he's facing the, uh, the vitriol of the general public and social media and the media. And, and he knows he's, he's not guilty, but he can't say, well, to degree. Well, I mean, for, he was kind of blacked out so that there is a degree that he could be questioning himself as well. But he he knows he loved Lisa and that he didn't. Yeah, ultimately he knows he didn't. Yeah. He didn't do it. It's just you know how do you prove this you to prove the world it? that believes he did? And you know he says you know to his buddy um, in in the uh, the um, the old soul guy and in, in the bar at the beginning the Melody Bar and Grill, which is a real place in, in Los Angeles. It's a real bar. It's a great place. Um, <laughs> and he says uh, Floyd, right? He says to him. Uh, 
you know, I, you know, when he says to Kitty, you know, I didn't do it. And, and Floyd's there to help him out and, and help him through that very difficult time. But the reader still doesn't know whether, you know, whether what Luke tells Kitty is the truth. You know, I didn't do it. Of course, he's going to say that OJ said that. Jesus yeah. Christ. You know? Yeah. A part of the first act is, is, is everyone being like, oh, lady, come on, you know, right. Don't trust exactly. That guy. And that's important. It's an important part of the story because that, that, makes an arc for both kitty and for um for luke is that they kind of have an arc together where you know she starts to trust him we start to trust him and then you know we we get to that point in the story and it's one of the things that progresses this story so well yeah she quickly she quickly begins to trust the guy that everybody's telling telling her not to trust and yet she quickly, very rapidly loses trust in the, uh, well, she's very wary of Johan to begin with, but she starts, you know, he, he, he beguiles her and he, he lures her and tempts her in, you know, like any, you know, great bad guy. And, yeah. um, and then she sees that that's a mistake. Her instincts on both counts were, were all wrong. Um, and that's really, you know, like it's the first sort of, it sets up the second half of the book. Yeah, where, um, and I want to talk about that transition because it was a really smart and brilliant transition. But one more thing about Luke and Kitty's relationship is that yeah, it's so important that there's nothing sexual between them. It's so right. important because I'll, you know, there there a lot of storytellers in the past would 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 probably have developed that. But for one thing, it's important that it's, since we're in spoilers, that once Luke finds lisa you know that there's no tension there and also just because it's one of the things that tells us that that luke is is a good guy and that he's not out to exploit this woman that wants this career whatever and also like i just think it's important for kitty's character that that she doesn't see him that way that she's not she's not trying to get a career out of him either you know because a lot of people in LA, you know, they carry their headshots on, you, you know, and yeah, they're looking for any opportunity. Like, oh, I could turn this into a thing. There are people, you know, men and women who would, would do that in LA. So it's so important that there's nothing sexual between those two characters. And I'm sure that was an early decision on your part as a storyteller, right? Um, yeah, that was never that was never even a question. You know, I, yeah, you know, really in my head, it was I wanted to to, to have Luke be this character who was wholly despised, but who essentially was wholly good. That included not, obviously not taking any kind of advantage of, of this, of, of Kitty, who's, who's young and, you know, she's arrived in Los Angeles, she doesn't know anybody. I mean, there was never a question that, that Luke was always going to do, do the right thing. And then that, and then it, it stings even more that, that he, is is vilified in the way that he is you know um so yeah there was uh, i couldn't i couldn't it would have all been like you said you know yeah. like when when he sees lisa it would just have all been very messy and no it was very important to me that luke was seen as once we get to know him as a wholly good guy you know and you know even the advice he gives kitty about you know the movie industry and and because you know at one point kitty says to him i'll do whatever it takes and he says something like just be careful who you share that willing with willingness with because there are a lot right. of people out there who are going to who will take advantage of you 
and yeah. uh, he's he's not one of them. You know, he's just a good guy. And unfortunately, uh, she does uh, fall into that trap with Johan um, and selling um, Canary this performance-enhancing drug that exists yeah. in, the, uh, in the book. And uh, the reveal of uh, you know the kind of the what's the box scene um, with uh, was great. Um, it because what it really does is it's such a hard transition from where the novel was to where the novel's going. And so I really liked that it was kind of like, and this is kind of a bad metaphor because of, of what's going on in the novel with Johan and the fake Viking stuff, but it's kind of like the battle axe is dropped in, the, right. <laughs> in that scene. And then it changes the whole book. Uh, it's really well described the, the way she, I liked um, drawing everything inside her chest into a hard frosty ball <laughs> like uh, it's just a very rich scene. It, it 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 just it's a great transition. So can you talk about how um, you thought of Johan kind of revealing himself to be evil in this scene? Because we we knew it's coming. We can see that he's a bad guy. We see the train wreck coming. But this reveal was so important. So can you talk about this this scene? Yeah, you know it was um, that scene is. is you know, it's kind of like uh, this is what propels the, the the rest of the book. You know, this is the Kitty at this point. You know, she's new. To, you know, she has been new to the city. She doesn't really know anyone. She's gone from sort of trusting no one to at this point in the book, she trusts everyone. So she's just settled in. She feels that her life has taken off. She's got this job. Johan seems to be this you know, almost magical guy. He's got celebrity connections. She's established something of a relationship with with Luke um although she's still obviously a bit uncertain about him but she yeah so yeah you want that scene to be like a kick in the stomach right like that moment where you know you finally pull back the shower curtain and and there's the creature standing there with you know the the guy with the knife in his hands and you're like i knew that was there i knew that guy was was always going to be there so um but he does it in a charming way you know, look, he brings her a birthday present and it's all wrapped up and it's, you know, the, the wrapping is pretty and uh, there's no, nothing to suggest other than the reader's intuition that anything bad is going to happen in that scene. You know, Kitty's certainly not expecting it. So I wanted it to feel like, yeah, I wanted it to feel like we were going to shoot like the next part of this, this, this book out of a cannon. Like it had to have that kind of, like kinetic energy to it you know i'm see the pants guy right so i didn't really know about that scene too far before i got to it i knew that there were going to be issues with sly boy and that he'd been you know dipping his fingers into into johan's product and the kitty would would be on the receiving end of a lot of that angst but uh i wasn't quite sure how i'd get to that point and and you know i sat down and worked it all out and and that that felt like a time bomb, right? That, that had been ticking, and this was the point where it where it explodes, and Kitty realizes then that she's, I mean, she's made this a choice that that's going to cost her a life, effectively. Um, yeah, it was. It it went well. Like the scene went well. The writing of the scene, I think, Johan is is just the way he 
presents himself in that scene, never loses control. He's always cool. He's eloquent. He's still given off this persona of being, you know, incredibly charming and gifted and nothing he can, nothing he could do without any consequence. He's entirely confident. Now you see the Panzers. I, I don't know how you do it. Um, and being an outliner myself, being a serious outliner, because I, I don't know how, so that's the thing is that after this, Luke and Kitty, like when Kitty survives, that's great action scene with her hiding in the, the basically the engine shaft of the car and, and, and getting out great action. Then um, there's some great character stuff with Luke being able to use his connections to a makeup effects artist and, you know, kind of to, to pretend to be a cop and, and, and show her as being dead. Like, I don't know. That had you had to have had that idea ahead of time, right? That that was coming, right? You you knew that at least. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. That okay. Was, that was one of one of the few scenes that I that I kind of the, <laughs> the book was leading up to, right? That, yeah. That scene where they fake Kitty's death, and uh, yeah. I, yeah, I like that idea. That was one of the one of the things, you know, when I talked about, you know, having this you know, Luke, these characters in my mind, there was that sort of scene, like, oh, that's got something to do with it, you know, and it was, it felt really, there were, there were two scenes that actually felt that I was kind of, well, maybe three, Luke waking up with the blood on his shirt, the scene where they fake Kitty's death, and the other really important scene, it was really weird talking about this, because this is so spoilery, all this stuff, yeah. but where he finally finds Lisa, and then, of course, Johan descends as chaos. Yeah. And Luke, at some point, Johan takes Kitty off. Lisa goes off with, um, Jesus Christ, my memory, I can't even remember the guy's name, Ramon, right? Yeah. In the other direction. And now Luke has to choose whether or not he goes after his wife or whether he goes after his friend. And because you can only follow one of them. Um, I knew I wanted that scene. And I didn't know how the hell I was going to get there. Yeah, and that decision is heartbreaking in that moment. And at, like after everything that had happened to him, yeah, it's great, yeah. great, yeah. powerful stuff. And you got ahead of me because I had that that <laughs> right that, sorry, that decision yeah. on on my list of things that I wanted to talk about. And been well, building that's pants in, right. That's the thing, you know. You talk about seeing the pants, and and I am, but oftentimes you always that you have these these things in your head that you sort of waypoints that you have to hit it's yeah. just getting to them you you know you know this has got to happen you just don't quite know how you're going to get there so yeah well the same thing with when when you outline like moments happen you're not prepared for you know when, when you're outlining too you have moments of invention where you're like you know, and oftentimes it means like I got to go back and change the outline because everything's changed now <laughs> right, um, yeah and that's one of the things is it's fluid too. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, but it's obviously you're, you're getting to, and that, and that point, we'll get to that in a little bit, but once they fake the death and then, and Johan is kind of following them, there's also the, the, the character, and I can't remember her name, the cop who, Terry, yeah. yeah, who, is a very important character and it's interesting the way you broke up the narrative is that you know you give her uh pov chapters even though she's in the story a little bit less but it's important because we get to 
to see behind her decision that she really believes Luke is guilty and she's looking for justice. So she means well, because she believes in her heart of hearts, you know, and so it kind of creates a situation for us as readers that we, we want this woman to understand that she's wrong. Yeah. But we don't dislike her, you know, we, we, you know, she meant well, but we also want her to understand, Hey, you were wrong. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So she's a really interesting character. Can you talk about creating her and like, was she kind of a seat of the pants invention? Um, Uh, Once the story started to fall into place, I knew I had to have another element that, that Luke and Kitty needed to deal with. A lot of the stuff with Taro was see at the pants and just and did fall into place nicely. Yeah. And and I just knew that she'd be she'd be there at the end. Like Luke and Kitty couldn't take on Johan and Xander by themselves. They needed a bit of backup. So I knew that Tara was gonna realize that she'd made her a terrible mistake. Um and that she would come in at the end. But a lot of the stuff like her like Xander and, and Luke finding the pictures of Kitty, the, the fake death pictures, and showing them to Tara. Like I didn't have any of that. Like <laughs> you know that that was that turns into quite an important scene. But I that that wasn't in my head at all until you know I knew I had to get Johan and and um, and Xander after Luke and Kitty, but I didn't know how I was going to do it, and. Uh, so that all fell into place quite nicely with the pictures, with Xander finding the pictures and then and then um Tara being able to say, I know exactly where they are, where did you go get them? Because mm-hmm. she's been tracking, she's been tracking Johan, um Luke, of course. Um, but Tara's character was was interesting because she's a tough, tough, intelligent, um, brilliant woman. This, um, you know, had a hard life, grew up in Pennsylvania, fought Lola Bear <laughs> at one point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then moves, moves out to LA to, to be a, a cop and, and uh, you know, becomes a detective and just but a, a checkered career because she doesn't take any shit. Tara just, she, she very uh, compulsive. And, um, and, and then, and if I'm hearing you correctly right there, and, and maybe I missed this connection, but so so this is the, the wider Rio Ewers universe kind of connecting right here, right? Is like making this this is that the this character is that happening or am I overthinking it? <laughs> uh, you know, is you know, there's always a little there's usually a link to something or other in in um in my stories, I, you know, I don't have enough readers that any of them are going to, you know, like form a whole great encyclopedia on the world of Rio Ewers and how it's all connected, Castle Rock style. Um, but yeah. Well, there was a time of, where Stephen King was doing that in a vacuum too. So yeah, so yeah. It, maybe it'll it's, come together. A lot, a lot of it's for my own, you know, satisfaction. Right. And astute readers, maybe all three of them will, will pick up on it. But yeah, Lola Bear is mentioned in 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 uh in no second chances because Tara they're about the same age these two women and and from similar backgrounds essentially just growing up tough and um yeah their paths cross in a in a, a mixed martial arts tournament 
and it's mentioned in passing, but it gives you a sense. If you've read Low Long Fire, it gives you a sense of, of the kind of cloth that the terror is cut from. And uh, yeah, she's uh, yeah, there's a little bit of the wider universe stuff there, but no one's really going to pick up on it, and it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> you know? Well, we but outed it, so it's we there. know what it is. We know what it is. So, she's so. Uh, she's she was just I just I needed someone tough, and I needed someone who was going to hound Luke. And um and be yeah, able to be I, there I, at the end. Yeah. 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 It was, no, it was, makes sense. It was also also not um not so damaged that she wouldn't be able to realize when she was in the wrong and, and want to put things right. All Tara has ever wanted was justice. She wanted the right thing done. That's her entire motivation. And um and as soon as she realizes that she's made a mistake about Luke and that she was wrong about him, she goes beyond the call of duty to try and make everything right. And um, we, I think we go on a journey with, with Tara. We start off really not liking her very much. And then, and then we sort of, you know, grow to become quite fond of her. And uh, yeah, it's, it's then a, she uh, makes a rough choice. Yeah. Then she makes a rough choice. So yeah, she's a, She's as mixed up as everybody else in this book. Let's face it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, so the we're getting towards the end here, and so 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 finding uh, Luke, finding Lisa, and the vindication, but the horror of 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 how freaky the situation is. Like, um, talk about writing that because you know. Um, it was so important at that point for us to following Luke as a character that we, we wanted to see him vindicated. So there's a kind of revulsion and relief at the same time in, in that, and those chapters. And, and I think that's a really interesting balance to kind of strike when you're tell, telling that part of the story. Yeah. I mean, obviously for the story to hold up, you know, Lisa had to be in a situation where she, she really wasn't able to communicate with the outside world that she wouldn't be found and um and that she would have been mistreated um by as it transpires um johan's drug manufacturer um and it was a kind of I, what i was hoping for with that with that scene where luke finds her is is you know I, did, I didn't want it to make it all about Luke and his career and him being exonerated and, and all of those things. I wanted it to be about Lisa and what she'd been through and, and Luke being the, the, the good person he is to, to be more fixated on how are they going to get, how is he going to help her now? How is he going to find a way through to, first of all, let's get her out of this basement. First of all, let's get her the help she needs. Yeah, um, you, don't want him, sort of, you don't want him having the reaction of like, oh man, I gotta call my agent, you know. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that that barely even registers in his him being exonerated, barely even registers in his head. It's it's entirely it's all about, about getting her to safety and yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got to we then have to reveal how she got into that position, which you know, so we we, we go back to Luke waking up with the sh- blood on his shirt and how did that happen? And um so we, there were two things at play with that scene, and one was obviously the, the reveal, and then two was you know making sure that Luke handled it in a, in a way that 
the the sort of fit his character and that didn't you know shine the wrong light on him and um yeah again you know he's his, his motivation here is, is not was never really to get his career back on track you know he he had this tumultuous relationship with with lisa very hot and cold but they they always loved one another and he he wants to find a not for his career but you know partly to be exonerated of course he wouldn't want that but but mainly because um he loves her and he's scared for her and he and he kind of has this feeling that she's still out there she's still alive i mean yeah so there were just some delicate pieces to handle there yeah you know and i gotta say too well we're thinking about the ending here johan like when it comes to the end his villainy isn't the only thing we're dealing with we're dealing with like the whole kind of system of ramon and like all that the, the, the thing and where the drugs are coming from and all that but cutting through here at the end i i want to point out that this is the second review in a row rio where i commented on on how good at writing villains stephen king and luke Besson are and how you're in that category so if i say it twice in a row that means that now i i have to put you in that pantheon of writing great bullies um i I believe you it's been a while since i read the forgotten girl but i remember forgotten girl had a really 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 nasty villain in it too so um so i i think i have to officially put you in there in the writes great bullies category um because you 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 do (laughs) And, and I think what's interesting that happens here at the end is that the the, the horror of what's happened to Lisa and to all that is it's it's such it's so balanced that moment where even when he knows he's caught and he's doing all this, the Johan again references that daddy's lawyer, you know. He thinks he can get out of even this, right? Yeah. Even this, this, this dreadful, awful, like the kidnapping, the drugs, the, all of it is like my dad's lawyers, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think, I think that that's why King and his blur pointed out that, that the villainy here is, is so intense. And it's not just anyone saying that. It's one of the guys who I who I think is the two writes the two best bullies on the planet. <clears throat> so that's a pretty big deal that he's pointing out that the villainy of this character. That that in the end of the day, writing this book, that has to be something that you feel really good about. Is just how strong that villain comes off when it's all said and done. That being said, how. How do you reflect on this book now that it's over, especially as a pantser? Like, how different was the book from how you intended it to be? Um, it, it was the book I wanted to write. Um, certainly, yeah, I had this image in my head. You know, like I said, didn't have everything. You know, it wasn't like joining the dots. There were very few dots on the page when I sat down. Um, but, you know, when you look back on it and the whole, the feel you were going for, the story you wanted to tell, the characters you wanted to create feel like I, I feel like I did what I set out to do that I achieved. And, and, you know, all of my goals and I checked all of the boxes and, uh, 
yeah, just um, just very pleased with it. Uh, yeah, there were a few scenes that I thought would go in that ended up not going in, and uh, but I hit those waypoints that I wanted to hit, and I think I did it in a convincing way. Um, and I, one of the things I was most concerned about was getting the Hollywood vibe, you know, right, getting the California vibe right. And I say Hollywood in regard to the actors and the acting and, mm. and the Hollywood, you know, there's a Hollywood party in, in, the, in the, uh, the first part of the book, maybe a third of the way through, Johan takes Kitty to this, this Hollywood, big Hollywood bash. And I've never been to a Hollywood party. No one's ever invited me to, you know, <laughs> to, to an actor up in Beverly Hills in the Hollywood Hills and, you know, partying with, with, the, with, the, uh, with the superstars. Uh, that's so again you know that's me kind of just feeling my way through that i think it's probably like this um and th that, that that's when you have to rely on like the the writers or the directors who who are interested in your books you gotta take the advantage of those moments to ask them like what it's like you know well you know it's it's it the way I see it is that probably, you know, 95% of my readers haven't been to Hollywood parties either. So they're not going to be able to pull me out on it. But it was important, just the whole feel more than any, more than anything. And I think I did that. You know, my, um, you know, you're a California native, Chris Ryle. Who read the first oh, I'm not a native. Book. I just lived here for a long oh, time. Oh, you're right. Yeah, of course. You come from a bloom. We know that, yeah. right? Yeah, but, from Indiana. Yeah. Um, the guy... Uh, fabulous voice actor and actor Jim Meskimen who, who reads the audiobook version of, of No Second Chances. He also did such fantastic work with Lola on Fire. Um, he read the book. He's obviously, he obviously read it for the audiobook. And I, I would get emails during his reading process just saying how, how much he was enjoying it. He actually preferred it to, to Lola on Fire, which was very satisfying. And he said, dude, you got the you got this Hollywood thing down. You just nailed it, you know. Who did you who are you talking to? And he's a he's an actor, he's a Hollywood guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was uh I was like, oh, it's great. It's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. always that's always a good feeling. I had with Punk Rock Ghost Story. I when I I got a couple of reviews that were like, this guy's obviously been on tour a million times. And yeah, <laughs> like and I'm like know a lot of friends who have been you know yeah, yeah it's good when you when it happens yeah and that was that was really you know obviously portraying the characters not giving away too much about the story too early hitting the reveals at the right point getting the right. hollywood vibe the, the la vibe right making everything feel believable those are the things i i set out to write so when i look back at the book now that it's finished I, I, I see that I, like I said, I hit those, those waypoints and I checked those boxes. I'm very, very happy with the way it turned out. Getting the King blurb is, you know, it's, it's an amazing, uh, it's, it, there's no real word, you know, it's, um, it's already made the book a success in my eyes. Nothing <laughs> right. that can happen. If the book sells zero copies, the fact that I've got a, a blurb from Stephen King has, has made it worth, worth I mean, reading, writing. Just just to know that he sat down, read it, enjoyed it. It's gotta be a great feeling. Like after all the hours, you know, we, you, you've spent in your life reading his work, you know, like it's, a, 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 you know, that that's a great feeling. I'm sure. 
Um, yeah, and I just want to say as well, I do want to add that although I know his sons very well, Joe and Owen, um, there were no favors here, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't you don't go through Joe and Owen to get to their dad. That's that's not a thing that happens. Yeah. Um this was this was uh um just the fact I think that you know Steve King wanted to sit down and, and read the book. And the fact that I've worked with Joe and Owen had no bearing on it whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, I earned this one, man. I earned it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's like one of the things, I think that's one of the reasons why like his blurb for End of the World Running Club meant a lot to me because he just tweeted out, of, he just bought that book at the Toronto airport and said, I picked up this book on a flight from Toronto and read it, read the whole thing on the fly, loved it. And I think the idea that, you know, a lot of times people forget that King just, when he tweets out these things about these books, these days, a lot of times, you know, if they're already on the cover, that's one thing, you know, that maybe there's a publisher connection, but when he tweets them out, you know, that that's just him in the moment. Like I just read this and I want to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. You know, <clears throat> and then it ends, it may end up on the cover of the book that way. But you know when you read the tweets, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <clears throat> that um, and especially like it, he's still got his ear to the ground. I mean, you know, I'm sure he listens to Joe and Owen when they say he like I like David. this. Can you hear me? What? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he has his ear to the ground. So I know like he probably listens to his sons when they say they like a writer, but you know, like he's not gonna, you know, he, he talks about the stuff he likes. So that's it's great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's no, there's no favors there. It's, uh, yeah, and they're very three very different um, men, three very different writers, and, yeah. uh, and you know, of course, you're right. You know, they do look at, you know, what each other read. But like I said, you know, I've known Joe for God, 10, 12 years probably, and Owen almost as long. And I think this right. is the first time King's ever picked up one of my books. So, uh, good. Yeah. <clears throat> now, time. So just to wrap things up, because. Um, we're assuming that people listening at this point have already read No Second Chances, but and so I, I really appreciate um, that people have read this book. They, they're doing that. So they're going to get rewarded in this part where I'm going to ask you, like, what you're working on now, um, whether it's cover work or whatever. And um, so we, we know that the people who made it this far have read the book, have read the book so that they've earned getting a little treat <laughs> like, oh, yeah, cool. thank, and yeah. thank you for reading even if it's just a vibe even if yeah. you can just tell us the vibe of what you're doing like that would be cool but uh you don't have to give us names because that may be early uh obviously yeah. <clears throat> um i'm actually working on i've got a few short stories that sort of piled up <clears throat> during um the writing of uh, no second chances, and and then I jumped straight into the comic, the Refrigerated Full Heads comic, um, and yeah, these, these short stories were piling up in the background, so I'm kind of going through those. I'm a I'm a slow slow writer as well, so it takes me a while. You know, most people can rattle off a, a short story in a couple of days. That I don't have that that unfortunately that talent um, of being super quick and super good. Uh, and after that, I don't know really. After the short stories, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a look and see where I'm gonna go. 
Awesome. Well, hey, uh, Rio, I freaking love No Second Chances. Thanks. It's a, it's a book that also, it's one of those books that the more you think about it, um, the more you enjoy it. It's one that definitely would make a great film. And uh, the characters are rich and vibrant <laughs> and and really like make it sing. So yeah, there's cool action, but uh, your secret weapon is those characters. And, Thanks, man. And they're, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's a really great book. So um, we'll, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure we'll talk when the next one happens, but um, I just really appreciate the time. And I hope writers get a little bit out of the spoiler discussion and see um, h- how you do it. Cause it's, it's, it's really, it's really neat. I wish I, I, wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. I, I think you've given us some stuff to work with here to think about. So great book. Thanks, and uh, uh, thank you everybody for listening. And um, is there anything else you want to tell people uh, um, before we go? Last thoughts? Go buy this book. For God's yeah. sake. And, and tell yeah. others to, 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 to get it. Um, Spread the word. Like Share it. the word. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If you want another book, you got to go buy this one. <laughs> And I do, so I, I, I definitely want people to. All right. Um, thank you very much, uh, Rio. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, see you on the podcast again. That'd be thank great. You. Thank you, David. All right.